This is my conversation with Jody Azuni, a highly regarded American philosopher currently at the philosophy department at Tufts University. Having an unusual background in poetry and fiction, he is known for his unique perspective on a range of philosophical issues, as well as for exhibiting a distinct literary sensibility in his philosophical writing. Azuni has published extensively in leading academic journals, and he has published many books as well. He has made important contributions to our understanding of language, logic, metaphysics, and epistemology. In addition to his philosophical work, Azuni is also a talented poet and writer of fiction. So how was your journey with philosophy? How did it start? Like, did you, like, you know, as a young kid want to study philosophy? Because nope. I don't think that's something that people, like, that's not a path that people plan early in their career. No, you have really in the United States, again, I'm speaking, you know, coming through New York, but this is probably true everywhere in the United States. Philosophy is something you really learn. You learn what philosophy is late. Um, um, you know, you have a vague uh, vernacular use of philosophy, you know, my philosophy is kind of thing, but you really don't understand it as a subject matter until much later. I started out in literature. I write, I, I, I was writing fiction from very early and poetry. And I was interested, uh, by the time I reached high school, I was interested in what would be called philosophical writers. Um, that includes Nietzsche, who is a philosopher, but also Dostoevsky and Shaw and other ones. And it really wasn't until as an undergraduate in college that I decided to major in philosophy, mainly because the philosophy department didn't have as many specific requirements as the English department did. The English department wanted you to take a course in Beowulf, and they wanted you to take, oh, a course in the Victorians, and etc. I didn't like those restrictions. Hmm. So I majored in philosophy and I just kept taking philosophy as it went on. I also took a great deal of, of English and I continued to write. And then somewhere mid the, the second year, I suddenly realized, oh, you know what? To really understand what's going on in philosophy, I need to know much more mathematics. And then I started to learn mathematics, and that's because of philosophers like Leibniz and Descartes and Spinoza, even. Yeah. Hmm. So, how has mathematics helped you understand philosophy, and how has philosophy helped you understand math? Well, uh, it's mostly going from the math to philosophy direction. You might have thought it went the other way. Hmm. You might have thought, for example, that a good training in logic as it's taught in the philosophy departments, would uh, affect how you would understand mathematics. Actually, a lot of mathematics, uh, a philosophy of mathematics does think something like that is right. I've come to think something like that is wrong. But um, the point was, it was there was a lot going the other way. Mathematics is a place where concepts and uh, inferences and implications develop in a relatively pure way. And I actually think a lot of what happens in mathematics illuminates what happens 
uh, with concepts and the development of concepts in ordinary life and in sciences. And so I think there's less, a lot of lessons working that way. Hmm. The other thing is that right away when you do mathematics, you start appreciating the importance of, of, of a specialized language, or rather, plural, specialized languages, and you start to become sensitive. Well, I don't know if everyone does, but this is what happened to me. Uh, you become sensitive to properties of language, and you start asking questions like, well, is what's going on in, in the language uh, the same in mathematics as it is in ordinary life and in the sciences? So, um, and one of my focuses, of course, is language um, uh, across the board in, in so many ways. And um, the mathematics does illuminate that. How so? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, one of the things that happens is here's an artificial fact. An artificial fact is mathematics is full of definitions. And for a very long time, philosophers thought, well, that ought to be what's going on in, in, in natural language as well. Okay. And it turns out it's not. Actually, definitions are relatively rare in natural language. I mean, by definition, I mean something like you're really characterizing the uh, scope of a word, necessary and sufficient conditions, they're called. And turns out those things don't show up in dictionaries, and those things actually don't show up in ordinary life at all. We, all the words we know, and any native speaker knows a massive number of words, knows, knows how to apply them, knows how to correctly apply them, but without definitions. And it's not that there are definitions buried underneath the surface in some sense. So actually a natural uh, uh, life, uh, ordinary life, uh, definitions uh, are things we forge and come up with on occasion uh, with work, hmm. uh, not just with philosophical concepts, but really with any concepts. So, all right, so that is a mark of, oh, well, mathematics is really kind of different in that respect, because really it's replete with definitions. But the other thing that happens that is illuminating is nevertheless, there's kind of an evolution of concepts in mathematics. And this is happening in natural language all the time. And so that often you can see it clearly happening in mathematics because everything is so explicit. Whereas in ordinary language, often this, this evolution of concepts and words goes on under the surface because it's not being made official. So yeah. just a really simple example that um, um, has actually become topical. The way we use the word fact these days in English, uh, if something's a fact, it's true. Hmm. Um, and, and you realize part of the um, uh, silly controversy that, you know, showed up with Trump and Trump supporters was they started trying to use fact in a different way or making it sound like, oh, well, you know, there can be your facts and my facts, et cetera, et cetera, where, you know, it's hard to understand. And of course, they would go on to say there can be my truths and your truths. But hmm. actually, true doesn't work that way. And not <laughs> fact. But go back a little bit to uh, in Britain to before Newton, during the um, 
in the legal tradition, and fact didn't mean that. Fact wasn't factive. Facts could be false. Mm. Uh, and so the word evolved. Now, that's, as I said, it's a really simple example, but lots of words evolve. And it's important to see that happening because how we, what we can understand and how we talk to one another and things like that, it's all, you know, it all happens in the fabric of language. I mean, there was also gestures. There's also facial expressions. I'm not, but you know, the bulk of what we can be explicit about, it's happening in language. Is that the same thing with the word literally? Because a lot of people don't use literally the same way as it was meant to be mentioned. Yeah, well, uh, words words um, can evolve. Um, and l literally pretty much has. I think that's correct. Now, what happens is there's always this period of time. Um, I guess it was William Sapphire, right? Many years ago, this guy, he was a curmudgeonly sort who was constantly complaining about correct and incorrect usage. The problem is if words evolve, uh, something that's correct, incorrect usage of one time can become correct usage later. It, words can shift. And then you get people uh, reacting badly. Actually, people react very badly to words all the time. There's such an emotional response to words. But um, uh, when they when they change this way, but the thing to to realize is how fast it can happen. I was 30 when I suddenly realized, oh my God, there's some little changes happening here in syntax and in meaning. And I, you know, you know, I picked it up and I was surprised. And being a professor, you 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 have this terrible tendency to want to correct right away. Oh, that's not hmm. the way to do that. But sometimes, yeah, you, you need to correct. But other times, no, what you're seeing is a little sea change and you better go with it or you're going to start to sound archaic. Look, hmm. someday, and I say this, everything I write, uh, if anyone picks it up, a hundred years from now, or fifty years from now, or even maybe twenty-five years from now, it's going to sound archaic. It's going to be dated. That's because language evolves. Hmm. And how much does culture play into the role of, like, you know, language evolving? Uh, oh, there's this big, enormous. The, what about people who are like coming in from a different place, trying to learn a language? Doesn't it become very difficult for them if they're just immersing, not immersing themselves, but like relying on text then? Relying on what? On text. Like if I, if I want to learn a language and I just pick up books, so like, oh, you know, I'm going to learn word for word and then try to understand that. And then when you go down the street, if you say the same thing that you've read, it doesn't make sense. That's not how people talk. Well, it can vary. It depends on the books you pick up and, mm. and the place you're at. In uh, English, if you get the right novelists, you can get something that's very close to the way spe people speak. Okay, or at least people spoke at a time, or at least a subgroup of people spoke in an environment, say, in a city or in rural areas. You really can. Okay, you can learn a lot that way. Um, on the other hand, there can be deviations. You go into an area, and if you're not talking to people and listening, um, there will be things you'll you you cannot you can fail to pick up.
Okay, so I, I'm going to agree with you, but I'm not going to dismiss the value of trying to learn um, a, a language from books. I actually uh, picked up French mostly from reading. At one point, I was not bad at it. And that helped me to read, well, other books. I'm not sure that it helped me very much to speak to people in French. For one thing, I was reading French. I wasn't speaking it or pronouncing it, or for that matter, hearing it. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, nevertheless, I mean, you can learn things a different way. But there's something I want to jump off on in what you're saying. Um, and English is especially this way these days. There are many ways to speak English. <laughs> okay? And they're ju- and that, that's the only way to put it. So if you're in certain parts of India there's a lot of differences in how English is spoken. And I want to put that exactly as I said it, the way English is spoken. And in New York or in the Southern states or in Australia or parts of Australia, parts of England, what you're getting is you're getting variations in English. In a certain sense, to talk about English, like it's a one public language, is ill-defined. What you've really got is you've got a lot of them that overlap. Now, a writer that I thought who is still alive, so I shouldn't pass tense this, but who's really good with this is Salman Rushdie, where you read something like the Satanic Verses, and what you find is, you know, when it's a Canadian, you can see that it's a Canadian or someone from Pakistan or part of Pakistan or someone from England or Scotland. And he captures all of that with the syntax. He doesn't rewrite the sentences to change the phonetics, um, which is delightful because if you change the phonetics, you, you change the spelling, what you do is you can locate the narrator. So in Shaw's case, for example, you can locate the accent of the narrator based on how Shaw depicts an American. But with Rushdie, you can't. What you've got instead is you've got this, um, the modifications are all syntactic and with vocabulary items. But what he's doing is he's, he's dealing with a reality. And a reality is English is splintered. Every language is splintered. Look, I'll just say this as a matter. It's, it's uh, an aspect of linguistics that I buy into. Not everyone does. Um, a Chomskyan view. Strictly speaking, there are no public languages. There are idiolects, individual languages by each individual. And these things massively overlap. And luckily for us, that's why we can talk to each other. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Makes sense. Uh, How would you integrate your philosophical perspectives with your poetry and your writing? That's a question I'm learning will come up a lot now and for the rest of my life. And, I, and I'm not terribly sure how to answer it. Um, there is the sense in which it's one person who's doing this. That may not be very um, uh, uh, profound uh, uh, a point to make. But in my case, it probably is. I mean, some people, when they do one thing and they do another thing, the other thing is almost like a hobby something they pick up. But in my case, I'm trying to innovate 
and uh, uh, do something original and achieve certain things in the writing, in the philosophy. Um, they're not necessarily the same thing. They're overlapping things. Um, but so, for example, one of the things I'm very interested in doing in the poetry and in the fiction is capturing sensibilities that I'll put it that way, um, mm -hmm. where the sensibilities that I'm trying to capture can vary. They're not my sensibility. They're sensibilities that have interested in me or that I've created. Now, there's something very related to that going on in the philosophy where in a way a philosophical sensibility is a characteristic way that a philosopher reasons or comes to certain positions and related to this i'm i am especially interested in um aspects of let's call it because people do call it this folk psychology which is a kind uh, a bundle of rules of thumb and um, ways of kind to understand how people are put together psychologically. And um, I'm interested in understanding how that works, how deep it goes. And by how deep it goes, I mean almost something like this. If you're really trying to describe a human mind, uh, what would be the optimal tools to use that? for that and the one we have the one we've inherited as it were is folk psychology and the worry is of course there's a mismatch between that tool and how we really are and i actually think there indeed is a mismatch and um it, i'm interested in trying to figure out how we're supposed to circumvent that how good our folk psychological tools are etc and, and oddly enough or maybe not so oddly, that shows up in my fiction because my fiction is all character driven, as it were. And, and then the how, how, what is the relationship between language and thought and how it relates to the concept of meaning? Okay, meaning is, um, um, Meaning is complicated. <laughs> Let me start by saying that. So maybe I'm, I'm going to talk about meaning last. Maybe I'll talk about thought and language. Um, thought goes well beyond language. There are many ways in which we think, which are not to be captured by language or not easily. Um, I mean, this crudely, we, we think visually much of the time and visualization, it can be described to some extent by language, but not really captured. Um, but there's other ways we think as well. Uh, language, on the other hand, also goes beyond thought. It goes beyond thought in the sense that a la uh, many things can be written down in language, which in a sense, if they're long enough or strange enough, cannot be thought, or it cannot be thought the way we would normally think we could think about them, okay? Um, we might have to approach them in a different way, uh, as it were, not simply, oh, here's my thought, here's how I would put it, but rather, here's a piece of language very long, and here's its properties, and here's what it communicates, et cetera, et cetera, even though I can't really think that. Hmm. So they, they come apart that way, they overlap. And meaning is this sprawling 
um, 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 concept, I guess I can put it that way, where, of course, language sentences have meanings, and uh, but also so do our thoughts broadly construed. Okay, so so meaning is, as it were, why we care about these things and what we're trying to do with them and how to communicate with them. But, uh, uh, but it's really hard to say what that is. And um, in a certain sense, philosophically, we've said very little to date about it. I mean, there's all sorts of tools that have been introduced in the analytic tradition, especially, to try to capture meanings. And, um, you know, they've done uh, a partial job, a partial successful job, but not a full job. You, your work has been previously considered very different from the traditional approach. Why do you think that is the case? And if that is the case, if you agree with it or not. And why have you taken this different path? Okay. Um, the second question is easier to answer than the first question. The second question, the answer to the second question is, um, <clears throat> I, I, you know, I did not uh, lay out in advance how I was going to go philosophically or in anything that I create. I'm often very, very resistant to giving, you know, what you're supposed to do, you're invited to give a talk, you roughly think, I know what I'm gonna talk about. You, you have to give them a title, you have to give them an abstract. This often is six, eight, 10 months before you're, you write the thing even. I hate that, I hate doing it, because much of the time um, I go in a direction that I didn't expect, very often, okay? So that's the answer to the second question. I've just done what I've done. It, there's, it, you know, in, in, the, in every sense of the word, it's kind of spontaneous. The answer to the first question is, um, it's hard to say. I mean, there's a sense in which if anybody really looks carefully at my work or even not so carefully, they're going to say, well, that guy's an analytic philosopher, hmm. okay? There's a heavy reliance, there's work in logic, there's concerns with philosophy of mathematics, uh, philosophy of language, semantics, uh, metaphysics, epistemology, but it's all deeply steeped in the so-called analytic tradition. Um, you know, uh, substantial reading and reaction to that material and to the work of my contemporaries still broadly speaking in that tradition. I know a lot of what's called continental uh, philosophy. I've read a great deal of it, but it doesn't always come out uh, very clearly in my work. Why I ended up deviating as much as I did um, uh, is simply because certain kinds of arguments arose. I saw that certain claims that were being made simply were wrong. Um, what has happened in, in the tradition I'm working in is, and this often happens, a number of positions get established, um, sometimes based on what in retrospect can seem to, can be recognized to be pretty shaky basis. And then 
people work with those assumptions. And I have largely undercut a great many of them. And that's basically what has happened. It hasn't thrown me into a different place entirely. You know, the way that um, uh, if you undercut classical mathematics, you end up an intuitionist or something like that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I am still recognizably, clearly recognizably in the analytic American tradition, analytic American, British, German. Actually, you know, there are analytic people from everywhere. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, I, I don't know. I'm saying American probably because that's what I am. But mm. it's not as if even what I'm citing is particularly American. Often it's not, most of the time, in some ways. So that's really the answer. The answer is the subject matter and the arguments that I found myself uh, uh, compelled to um, push uh, deviate from a lot of the standard positions. And, um, you know, and that's why I end up where I end up. It, none of it feels particularly voluntary. None of it is what I wanted to do necessarily. Um, you know, you, you, hmm. when, you, when you work in these kinds of areas, I, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but the same is really true of even a piece of fiction. Hmm. You write down a character, you decide, you, get, you, you have in mind what the character is like. You start to inter have that character interact with a lot of other characters or several other characters also which you've sketched out. You create a certain situation. And then there's a sense in which much of what happens after is forced, hmm. simply forced. And, and it's the same thing here. So how do your peers feel about it? Because they seem to be working from an inhibited manner, but you, you just, you allow your creativity to take you places. Um, it's lovely of you to say that, and I hope <laughs> it's true. And um, there might be a number of other people who think, well, that was insulting. <laughs> We're not like that. We're creative too. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean, um, uh, I'm not sure what to say in response to that. That would be anything but arrogant. So maybe I'm just going to say what I just said. <laughs> yeah, fair. Uh, how do you feel your work is going to contribute to the world of philosophy in a broader sense? Well, I have hopes. Of course, we all do. My hope is that people are going to uh, see oh my god what he said about oh to pick something at random not so much ontological commitment or uh, about how the word no works that um actually its properties its semantic properties are far more minimal than most people have thought than everyone has thought that at a certain point people are going to go this is right and the hope is it it means uh, we're going to stop worrying about certain things. Certain things, some of these things we've been worrying about for, oh, I don't know, 2,000 years. And uh, then we'll start to worry about other things because there's no end of things in philosophy to worry about. So that would be the hope. The hope would be that it would contribute in the sense that it was illuminating to people and that some of that work could function as a foundation. 
hopefully a more secure foundation than we've had before. That would be, that would be, uh, that would be great. You know, mm -hmm. that would mean I didn't waste my time and other people's time who were, were reading what I'd written. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of people who've inspired you, whose work have you seen and like who's changed and changed the way you see the world or when you were younger, you read their work and it like it, it was something that went like, OK, this is this is the field that I want to get into. Um, you want me to focus on philosophy, literature, what? Anything that comes to mind. Well, I mean, you know, I'm going to say something that probably tons of people have said. I'll start with the poetry. I mean, and I'll start with Shakespeare, hmm. where, you know, I'm looking at this and I have no interest in iambic pentameter or anything like that. But the way that Shakespeare generates imagery is still living. And I thought, I want to be able to create um, imagery new imagery like that with that kind of density that kind of richness that kind of emotional resonance so that was that kind of example writers they different ones tended to when i was younger i i've mentioned shaw several times already i'll mention dostoevsky shaw i just love the way these people talked and i said i want to be able to generate dialogue that's funny and enjoyable and spontaneous and, you know, and sounds like what people would say. And Dostoevsky, I, I was very, um, it's not as if he inspired me to, to be concerned with certain things. It was rather that I was concerned with these things. And there he was. Hmm. Um, I'm no longer concerned with the philosophical issues he's concerned with, but uh, I, I've actually been reading uh, The Brothers Karamazov very recently. I just read mm -hmm. it recently. And then I was struck, and, and in, a, in a new translation, in a, very, in a fairly new translation, 10 years old, and I was struck at, at just the way he puts the novel together and the way he, you know, zooms in and, um, uh, and with the characters' interactions and how that makes them so lifelike. So there's still things I almost feel to learn from him as a novelist. Philosophers, um, um, I guess there's been many, uh, many from the modern period, um, often, <coughs> sorry, with a philosopher. It's uh, what's inspiring, if that's the right word, or what's of interest is they pose a problem they see something they see something we didn't see before and i i credit plato with that for example what he saw was there's something going on in mathematical argument that doesn't occur in argument elsewhere mathematical arguments convince people other arguments and everywhere else they don't convince anyone of anything or don't seem to hmm. what's going on now, Plato eventually gives uh, an answer. I don't think it's the correct answer. But you see, that's the mark of a, of a philosopher that is important, at least to me, is they see a problem that you didn't see before, that nobody was seeing quite. And, and then the problem is deep. Kant, um, uh, I'm going to point to something probably most people don't point to. I'm going to point to the fact that, well, 
people probably point to this. I'm not saying anything fresh here. Look, um, the thing is Kant noticed that mathematical, again, it's about mathematical proof, but whatever. He noticed that um, mathematical proof didn't operate by what are called analytic truths. They didn't operate by looking at the intrinsic meanings of the concepts and seeing what followed from them. Something more was needed. That's a fundamentally deep fact about mathematical proof. It tends to go beyond it almost invariably goes, if it's any good at all, goes beyond the objects and concepts you're talking about. So that what you'll often see in, in mathematical proofs is there's an enormous construction to get a result. And sometimes those constructions can be used again and again and again, uh, ultra filters. But sometimes the constructions are just for the job at hand and then they get tossed. Hmm. Um, uh, and the funny thing is, is Kant really saw this. And he saw this with Euclidean geometry. And it's really important and it's really deep. And um, so that's an, another illustration. And usually what happens, I feel, with a number of philosophers is what's important is not their solutions to the problems, but they paused and looked at a phenomena and said, whoa, what is going on there? Hmm. So, yeah. So would you say that a philosopher's job or like a philosopher's needs are not to find the solution, as you said, just pause. And we are, as like the general public is approaching them differently. I mean, we shouldn't be looking at them for answers, but questions and that's it. Oh, no, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that at all. There may be answers and some of them may give answers and may, maybe there'll be good answers. Um, uh, it's not necessarily the case that um, a philosopher is only going to uh, pose problems. Um, I mean, sometimes it's said that, um, you know, philosophy just, it never, you know, it never gets anywhere. But that's not really true. And there's another cliche that people also utter, which responds to the first cliche, which is, oh, no, that's not true. What happens is a philosopher works something out and then it gets spun into a science. <laughs> I mean, if you look at how much of Aristotle there is, most of which is lost, but there was a ton we have, um, um, it's biology, it's logic, it's... It's meteorology, actually. Um, you know, these things get spun into sciences. Um, so then what's left stays in philosophy, the things we haven't fixed yet. Hmm. Uh, physics. Physics is a great example. Um, so uh, the answer to that is, um, no, philosophers give answers. And if they're good answers, then we build on them and we, we turn it into something else. Fair enough. Uh, can you talk about the challenges you've faced when you're uh, with your work, specifically with philosophy, poetry, and writing, and how have you overcome them? So what kind of challenges are you thinking about? 
your work I mean, in specific any pushback or how people have received your work negatively or positively because sometimes even positive cannot work in your favor yeah um uh mostly um the the main thing i face a lot of i think is i guess i'm going to put it this way incomprehension <laughs> that's a that's a very common experience for me where um people will say things that make it clear they simply did not follow the argument or yeah. in a poem or short story they didn't see what i was up to now were this comprehension total there would be you know little hope for me as a successful anything um but what happens is there are people and it's becoming more and more people as time goes on i'm glad i'm still alive to see it uh who go oh i get it i see what you're doing i see why that's right okay um again just to throw out a piece of jargon the same kind of jargon i've been alluding to before what i call quantifier neutralism is something that people are starting to realize oh yeah that's right you know but it's it's a slow process and um uh that's the main thing and what it's done is over the years it just delays things um i have a, an awful lot of stuff that i haven't gotten to yet that i I'm, i want to work on like now there's a race between me getting done everything that i want to get done saying everything i want to say in all of these areas uh and dying or or <laughs> otherwise diminishing let's mm. just leave the phrase that way and um as i said there's a race because it looks to me like I'm not going to get it all down on paper. Uh, I simply uh don't have enough time left. But okay, that's a nice way to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> busy. Is there, busy. Is there is there anyone you would see who's, you know, working around the same path as you who you could pass the torch to? Like, you know what, when I'm not around, watch watch out for that that guy or girl and she might be able to like, you know, uh emulate something similar. Of course, I wouldn't say copycats, but around the same vein as you no i'm actually not looking out for something like that um mm. there are people who agree with me uh, on a number of things mm. but then of course they're creatively working out other things often things that i don't agree with or they mm. don't agree with me about but no it's not it, it's it's what i'm always looking for when i'm looking for uh as a professor uh, of students in any area is i'm looking for people that i think are going to be creative well if they're going to be creative they may or may not uh emulate or uh rely on things that i've done um that's the nature of creativity and i yeah. i don't have a problem with that what i'm hoping is that what i've created will be valuable uh for people but being valuable doesn't mean they would emulate what i'm doing okay um hmm. rather it might be oh he did this with that i can use that and modify it in this way and now create that um that's you're, what i yeah you're a great thinker of our age 
but not everybody is on your level how would you tell someone how would you what what would you recommend to someone to be able to come like do even one degree of where you are well okay uh, let me see if i can answer the question you'll tell me if i really answered your question because i'm not sure i i i, I will hmm. the thing is what you should do what someone should do i think and by the way advice like this is always risky uh but but here's some advice um the main thing is uh you should put a lot of work into it a lot of dedication a lot of work and the other thing is um you should try to be open to uh you know thinking about things in a different way than you are thinking about them not because you should change how you're thinking about them but rather so that you can tell whether the way you're thinking about them is optimal or not okay and the the other thing is to always keep an eye on whatever you're creating to see if there's something in it or slightly to the left of it that is valuable uh this happens to me most clearly in the fiction and in the poetry but it can happen with philosophy too where i'm working on something and i've worked on it for several months and then i i put it down it's not it's not finishing it's not it's not working out and i come back to it and i realize oh that's because there's something in here that i should pull out and move in a different direction entirely hmm. so those are the suggestions um you know basically they're the old the old ones right mm -hmm. be persistent be open minded uh and the other one i guess this is worth doing assume you're confused about <laughs> different things and you know try to get clearer about what's mm -hmm. going on and in the process of trying to get clearer don't resist you know as it were getting your hands dirty you might say oh i don't want to go back to basics on this one i don't want to recalibrate it take it all apart and put it together again sometimes that's what you have to do if you're going to make progress that's what you should do uh, did i answer your question yeah it does make sense i mean i have a few ideas in my head and then when you do like give your recommendation it kind of makes sense that yes recalibrate it does really uh change perspective on things and you can see it from a different angle what are you working on now like what are the challenges the questions that you are pondering on well there's a bunch of things i'm working on at the same time one of them is actually a a, a sheer piece of logic in a certain sense um one of the things that happens in the sciences and in mathematics is you take theories that you're trying to get things out of implications and you manipulate those theories you change their form and sometimes um their form can be changed very drastically and, and then in a different way you can get information about out of them and one of the things i'm stepping back and trying to see if i can make some progress on is the question of when two theories are the same theories because if they're the same theories 
then of course you can use one to illuminate the other one. So I'm actually working on that. And as I said, that's a technical question that I'm working on. Um, other stuff that I'm working on very broadly is I'm, I am in the process, it's under review now, but I'll be engaging in revision, no doubt, subsequently, is I've been worrying about um, what's called epistemology. I've been worrying about how the word no works. Um, this has turned out to be really complicated, you know, knowledge and no. Um, unsurprisingly, because it's been bewildering us for millennia. And to understand it, you have to look at so many things. You have to look at how the language works. You have to look at um, uh, how we classify knowledge. You have to look at, at how we argue and disagree with each other. No, you don't know. Yes, you do know. And you have to realize that as a tool, just think of the word as a tool or the concept as a tool that we use uh, um, in the fundamental ways that we do, it's treacherous. It has ways that trick us and trap us. And skepticism is often the result of such a way of tricking and trapping us. You know, we end up thinking, oh, we can't know anything. Um, and my view is that at that point, something has gone very wrong with our way of using the tools. And we have to, and what I'm trying to do is uh, diagnose that and spell that out and, as it were, fix it. Hmm. So those are two what? things I'm working on. Uh, you know, I just finished a novel in the, in, the, in the summer, too. And that was, you know, something scary about what the future looks like. I'm often writing novels that are about what the future looks like, and they're always scary, which is I, I think a lot of people are writing novels like that. <laughs> about dystopian futures as a thought experiment. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm playing around with it in a slightly different way uh, in the last thing I wrote. I was um, um, uh, playing with the idea of a crystal ball hmm. and, 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 and how hard it is to, as it were, read a crystal ball, which is, you know, more or less a transparent metaphor for how hard it is to see the future. How do you see the future playing out with the current climate that we live in, political, environmentally, the way we are so divided? Uh, how does it play out in your head? Uh, it's hard not to be pessimistic, hmm. I'm afraid. Um, um, I was worrying about climate change. We did, I, didn't I don't think we had, when I was in my teenage years, um, I was worrying about warming. I was worrying about, you know, pollution, et cetera. And now it's just become very, very obvious how, how, much, how much damage we're doing to ourselves. And in, in a certain sense, it's a, it's a question of technological fixes plus political will. And you're absolutely right. Um, you can't have much political will to do anything, let alone anything good, if you don't have a certain amount of unity. And we seem to have even less. I don't know if that's true. Probably in every age, they're like, oh, we don't agree. We're always fighting each other. But somehow, you know, around the time of 1000, you know, in Europe, they thought the world was going to end. 
but they were wrong. And the world was not in danger of ending. Now, yeah, um, actually we know a lot more and things are bad. That doesn't mean that, that it's going to go very badly. That is to say, extinction, but it could mean that. And I'm, you know, uh, as I said, on, on most days I'm fairly pessimistic that we can pull ourselves together. And other times I'm not. And uh, I don't, I simply, to be honest, uh, don't know enough to say. Do you, do you feel like technology has exasperated the whole thing? Here's how I would put that. We're kind of an unpleasant animal, collectively speaking. And um, now we're an unpleasant animal with a really, really, really big weapon. <laughs> you know. yeah. But we're the same animal. We haven't changed. And that's a problem. You know, back when we had just rocks, we could only do so much damage. Hmm. And now we can do a lot more damage. So in that sense, yes, it's made the problem worse. And it almost is a sobering thing because um, the tools that can make the problem so much worse were developed by individuals who were focused on entirely different issues and were not thinking of applications. So... You know, the um, uh, the best example, of course, is general relativity, you know. Um, <laughs> that, that was not, <laughs> you know, crafted with the thought of, oh, wow, look what we can do. We can, <laughs> you know, put something in the hands of some future guy named Putin. No, um, a weapon was not envisioned it was eventually but not at first and you can do the same tracing back in history when you think about things like uh the computer and artificial languages uh, the same thing so it, it can be sobering because even someone like me you know who it looks like went directly to work on things that couldn't be used by anybody to hurt anyone. Well, you know, causation works in strange ways. Mm -hmm. And who knows what I've come up with that might be used in some very weird way. I, I can only, you know, be comfortable with the fact that I probably won't know about it. <laughs> is there hope, though? Oh, yeah. Of course there is. Ignorance always gives you hope. What about not having ignorance and still having hope? Well, yeah, but no, see, the point is when you have knowledge, then there's not, there's, there can be space for hope, but not in the sense of, I know this is going to come up about because you know it's going to come about. Yeah. So yes, no, hope lives in the spots where we're not sure. You know, or, you know, where there are probabilities that we can rely on. So, yes. And I think today, there, of course, there's hope. Um, you know, it's simply not clear. 
will it ever be? Will we ever find a solution where we will be able to live in a society, in a culture, in a world that is not so destructive to itself? Oh, I can't answer that. Um, uh, I don't know the answer to that at all. Um, I'd like to think sure, um, but it's certainly not going to happen. I don't, well, I don't know. You know what? I'm going to say I don't know because I don't know. <laughs> Where can people find your work? Oh, um, it's pretty easy to find uh, because of the uh, internet. Hmm. So I'm, this is something, I don't know if I'm lucky or unlucky. As far as I know, there is one Jody Azuni on earth, J-O-D-Y-A-Z-Z-O-U-N-I. There's nobody else with that name that could hmm. change, but it hasn't at the moment, which means if you do a search on my name, everything that comes up seems to be related to me. Hmm. I mean, it may not be true, but it's related to me. <laughs> um, um, so, you know, there are there's my own website, jodiazuni.com, uh, has, you know, some of the philosophy that's available online, some of the fiction and poetry. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, there is, you know, if you go to the Tufts website, that's the university I'm affiliated with, you can find uh, my CV, and then there's other publications. Uh, you can uh, write me. I'm still alive. People can can write me and, and say, I'm interested in this or that, and I can direct them to how to get it. But generally, things are, aren't hard to find if you if want. Someone if someone is dipping their toes into your work, what would you recommend they start with? And well, depending on where their inclinations lie. Well, depending on whether the inclinations lie, if it's the poetry, they can pretty much go anywhere. They can mm -hmm. probably get either of the two books of poetry uh, and read those. Um, if it's short stories, they can go to my website. That's uh, The short stories are in a lot of little magazines, but the website has uh, a good sampling. And the philosophy, it will turn on their training, hmm. uh, you know. Um, in certain areas and they, but again, the website has a couple of the papers of mine that are the most accessible in say philosophy of mathematics, which is otherwise not so accessible, but I have a couple papers that are fairly accessible. They're on the website. Um, so that would be a way to go. I mean, the philosophy generally you, you, you get to it through you're taking courses, for example, uh, in philosophy departments or elsewhere but but there are people that just you know can run across it and uh and read it profitably hmm. even without i've discovered that there are people that reach out to me outside of academia who've read work of mine and who clearly understand it so um i mean i have books they're they're available on amazon.com but Again, I can't. It depends on what their what the person's background is, uh, in what they've read already in in uh, philosophy of language, say, or or epistemology, or dot dot dot. Um, hmm. so. Well, thank you so thank you so much for speaking with me. Oh, thank you.